On May 24th, members gathered at an Ivy Ideas Night with Emily Chang, a Harvard University graduate and five-time regional Emmy award-winning journalist. You may know her as Bloomberg Technologies anchor and executive producer, but in this talk, Chang discusses her new book, Protopia, published earlier this year. The book is a critically acclaimed expose revealing Silicon Valley's sexist, aggressive, and misogynistic bro culture where women are vastly outnumbered and face toxic workplaces full of discrimination and sexual harassment. Despite the utopian ideals and moral high ground that the valley claims to hold, throughout the book, Chang shows us how to fix this toxic culture to finally bring down this protopia. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smart Water or Smart Water Sparkling today and at your local retailer. It's just such a pleasure to be here with you again. I still remember a year ago, we met for coffee, and it was actually less than a year ago I shared my story. And then in less than eight months, the book was out. And I just really appreciate just Emily's heart and just for her, not just her experience, but her, her investigative skills, but also just her care for people and her desire to really want to move culture forward. Yeah, it's definitely a pleasure to be together again. And well, and I want to say Lisa was so courageous that day and I could not have done this book if it wasn't for people like you, women like you, and we wouldn't have seen the change that we've seen in the last year well, if it wasn't for women like you. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so let's start with, you know, I think a lot of us are curious, what was your inspiration you know, for writing this book and why should this matter to both people in tech and outside of tech? Yeah, so, you know, I've been anchoring my, my show for eight years now and covering technology. I think this is such an amazing industry. Yeah, and I feel definitely. so privileged every day to be speaking to people who are on the front lines of making a difference. But over time, I became sort of increasingly agitated about the lack of change on one very specific issue and the underrepresentation of women. And obviously, mm. you know, minorities are also grossly underrepresented. I mean, the st statistics are actually quite depressing. And so I sort of became more courageous over time about asking these questions of the people who were in the chair. Mm. What are you doing about yeah. this? What are you doing to hire women? What are you doing to promote women? What mm. are you doing to fund women? And one day I, I interviewed an investor, very prominent investor. They had no women at their firm at the time. Mm. And I said, well, what do you think your responsibility is to, to hire more women? And I figured I would get some sort of politically correct answer, mm -hmm. as you normally do when you're on camera. And instead he said, well, we're looking very hard for women, but what we're not prepared to do is to lower our standards. Oh, he did that. And I actually felt like for a moment, someone finally told me the truth. And mm. a huge part of the problem is that people believe they have to lower their standards to find talented women. It just made me so mad. Oh. <laughs> Right. And it was kind of like my own times up moment. And sure. I, you know, I started talking to people more and, you know, it, this topic inspires such a visceral, personal, very emotional reaction. And I knew that there was more there, yes. that it wasn't going to be an easy topic to tackle, but someone had to do it yeah. or nothing was going to change. Exactly. And so I'd never written a book before. Somebody took a chance on me. I had great people surrounding me and, and encouraging me. Um, 
but this was two and a half years ago now before President Trump was elected, before me too, before all of this. You know, I had no idea we yeah. would be in, the, in this cultural moment. I feel so lucky that this conversation is happening and yes. that over the last year, women like you have felt more empowered to come forward and speak up because it could have been like a protopia tree falling in a forest, but luckily it was not. Yes, and your book is a platform where people's stories can be heard mm. so that when the tree does fall, it does, it does make a sound. It makes a resounding sound. Thank you. Well, it is, you know, the book is, is very journalistic and it, yeah. there's actually a lot of data in it, a lot of stories, a lot, 300 interviews. And I tried hard to let people tell their own stories, but I do ultimately take a stand. I mean, it's, it's called Brotopia. It's a pretty strong statement, Yes, but not, I think, without merit. And it it was a really interesting process for me because as a journalist my entire career, I've been coached to be objective, to not have an opinion, to not mm. show my opinion, to not mm. reveal how I feel in any interview. And this was different. And I, I, I sort of knew it wasn't going to make a dent if I didn't take a stand. It was scary, Yeah. but I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, well, we're <laughs> glad you did too. I remember meeting your mom at the book launch party at Bloomberg TV. And she was super warm and super welcoming. How was it like growing up? Was your mother, was she more traditional or progressive? How was it like in that generation compared to now? Mm -hmm. It's so funny because my mom and I recently did a pod, we got invited to do a podcast together and oh, I was okay. kind of like, oh, and I was like, well, this is really actually kind of special. And so we had this yeah. moment of sort of talking about sure. this where we did a little mother-daughter therapy. And um, <laughs> I love it. She, growing up, she was always, she, you know, our education was very important. And she had actually, I was raised in Hawaii and my, my father was Chinese. My mom is Italian. She was born in Philadelphia. And so she moved to Hawaii to be with this man and it was quite a big deal and they lived there for 30 years so you know she had taken this huge sort of risk in her life yeah. but growing up she was always very protective of us and she never wanted me I was never allowed to stay out late like I always had an earlier curfew than everybody else it was so frustrating but as I got older and you know I started my career and I had an opportunity to move to London and to move to China and when I told she never once, I mean, she was like, absolutely, you should go do that. And I was like, really? And so on some of those small things, she, she definitely like kept me close. But when it really mattered, she was like, you need to do this. You need to take that risk. And she was, she's been incredibly supportive along the way. She's also an English teacher and she found all the missing commas and all nice. the like Oxford grammatical commas. errors. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> the whatever Oxford grammatical something, something manual. Mm. Yeah. She has that. Amazing. Wow. It sounds like just being in that environment just inspired you to do, to be able to take risks, to take a stand. I, what are some of the challenges that you face, you know, as a reporter in tech, mm -hmm. you know, um, especially when people, when you're interviewing people who are blatantly, you know, sexist or misogynist, like how do you steer the conversation so that, like how do you manage those conversations yeah. when they are obviously not in line with your stance? Mm -hmm. So first of all, you know, the book is very much focused on women who work in the tech industry. And I work in the media industry, but I cover tech. And actually, mm -hmm. in my office, I, women are actually pretty well... We have kind of the opposite problem. I have oh. far more women on my team than yeah. men. Um, so we're always looking for good men. But, you know, obviously I cover an, I cover an industry that's really male-dominated, and my job is to sort of cultivate sources yeah. who are going to 
share information and tell right. stories and be comfortable enough to, to join to join us on the show. And so certainly I've been put in, in uncomfortable positions. You know, there was an investor who jumped in the car with me, and I was like, and I, he's like, where are you going? I was like, not where you're going. Um, and my husband's there. So, um, you know, I never felt like I never experienced anything to the extent that the women in the book experienced. But sexism and sexual harassment exist everywhere. And it is in Hollywood, as we've learned. It's in Washington. It's on Wall Street. But what I think makes Silicon Valley different is this belief and proclamation that we're changing the world. Mm. And mm. Silicon Valley has changed the world in so many ways. But it's also led to this sense of entitlement and arrogance yes. and moral exceptionalism that's sort of been an impediment to admitting, well, hey, actually, we're kind of part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell me that the people who can connect the world and you know, create the online bookstore for the world, you know, rides at the push of a button, you can't tell me those people can't build more diverse workforces. And so in my view, you know, if we can get people to Mars and build self-driving cars and organize the world's information, we can hire more women, we can pay them fairly, mm -hmm. and we can fund their ideas. That's not too hard a problem for Silicon Valley to solve. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I read the article you posted on LinkedIn. It was an article challenging Amazon. For their HQ2, the challenge was to hire a 50% workforce of men and women. How can the communities and both public and private organizations contribute to making that a reality? Mm -hmm. So think about everything Jeff Bezos has done. I mean, Amazon was, <laughs> you know, it was a bookstore. <laughs> Look at everything that Amazon has created. And then now he's building rocket ships and, mm -hmm. you know, speakers that talk to you in your kitchen. Amazon is now creating a new headquarters where they're going to create 50,000 brand new jobs. There is no reason that those jobs can't be 50-50. And that they could, you know, represent people of color in line yes. with the local population. And so I did, I did sort of challenge Jeff Bezos in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, it, it, the thing is, I think, too, so often we're hearing, oh, it's so hard. But it's so hard. Well, what's hard is going to Mars and building yeah. rocket ships. That's yeah. hard. Yeah, that's much harder. <laughs> this harder. actually seems quite easy by comparison. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just think that there is so much that can be done, but it really does need to start from the top. And there yeah. is a role that we all have to play, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But yes. we need the leaders of these companies to care because we've seen mm -hmm. what happens when they care about something. They make it happen. Everybody else in the organization also starts moving in that direction to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But we need more people at the top. Definitely. To yeah. be, you know, pounding their chests and uh -huh. pounding the table about this. Mm -hmm. The status quo is not acceptable. Yeah. Do you see parallels with the um, Hollywood and the Me Too movement? And how can tech and Hollywood partner so that we can tell the story and get it out there to more have a broader reach to the world? Absolutely. And I've been so inspired and, and encouraged by all of the, the, the women who've come forward in all of these industries. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to the folks at Time's Up. I've gone down to yeah. L.A. I was actually in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Oh, yeah. And so, um, you know, everybody is talking about this and everybody wants to know what they can do. What I think makes Hollywood different is that they have Reese Witherspoon who can be on stage at the Oscars saying, like, we can't stand for this. 
And in Silicon Valley, it's a little bit different. You have so many employees who sign non-disclosure agreements and yeah. they're signing their you know, voice away, essentially. Or they have entrepreneurs like you who like your business, your life, your livelihood depends on the success of your business. And so you have so much at risk. And so, you know, I, I've seen some, there has been a lot of positive change in the last year. For example, Uber just ended forced arbitration so that if somebody had not, you know, not without being pushed, as we all know, but that they're now actually a rarity in corporate America because women who have a complaint against or drive against a driver, against an employee or a driver or a passenger who have a complaint, they don't have to settle that complaint in private. They can settle that complaint in public. Mm, that's good. Because a lot of this stuff, it happens and we just don't know. Yeah. It lives in the shadows. Yes. Nobody talks about it. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that can, can really make a difference. Um, in the book, you mentioned you paid a visit to conference room G. <laughs> can you explain what that is and how it got its name and what impact? Does anybody had? know what conference room G is? I won't judge you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. Someone read the book. <laughs> It's just down the street, actually. Conference Room G is the Gold Club, which is a, a strip club in Soma. You do know what this is. Okay. And I, I had heard about this legendary lunch that they serve and that people go on their lunch break, many of them tech workers, because it's, you know, right down the street from all of these companies. You know, strip clubs are nothing new, right? But actually strip club lunches are kind of unique. And I, I called so, I had so many friends who work on Wall Street. I was like, do you guys do this like in the middle of the day? I mean, I know at the end of the day, but in the middle of the day? Um, they're like, no, no, not really. And so, I, I get there, I'm wearing sunglasses, a ponytail, and I've dragged along one of my colleagues who was way more, she was, I'm so glad she was with me because I almost froze. You know, we sit at a table and I realize, I'm like, oh my God, there's tech workers here having lunch in the middle of the day. It's 11.45 and the place was packed on a Friday, all you can eat, $5 lunch. I mean, it's a giant buffet. So if you're looking for a cheap lunch. Um, and one of the women who, one of the women who worked there, she was really kind and she came over. I think she probably could sense I was feeling a little uncomfortable. And she was like, so, hi, what brings you here? And I was like, ah, well, I just, actually I'm a journalist and I'm doing some reporting and I'm just trying to figure out what is going on here. And she just like spilled it. I mean, she was so helpful. She actually became one of my, my sources in the process and she was like, yeah, I mean, we have employees from, I'm not going to name drop the companies, but she did. You can read the book. Um, <laughs> you know, this company and that company and this company. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, they'll come in. Maybe there's a big conference at the Moscone Center and they come in with their boss. And they're, you know, it's generally it's all men. You know, sometimes there's a, a woman tagging along. Sometimes they'll go up to the private rooms together. When an executive walks in, everybody's flocking to them. And she's like, I know who the executives are because they have, the, you know, different color badges. And I just, I don't understand why you do that in the middle of the day. <laughs> and I don't understand that, how that cannot seep into your workplace. Yeah. And as I was doing more interviews, I, I, you know, three weeks after the Susan Fowler blog post, which it always bears worth repeating because it is sh so shocking. You know, her first day on the job as an engineer at Uber, she's propositioned for sex by her manager over the company chat system. And she takes screenshots of it and thinks, oh, open and shut. And she brings it to HR and they say, actually, he's a really good engineer. So we're just going to let that slide. <laughs> and so 12 women engineers over at my home for dinner after, three weeks after that happened. And they, you know, none of them were surprised. And a few of them worked at Uber. And they said, oh, yeah, we're invited to strip clubs and bondage clubs in the middle of the day and by our male managers. You know, we're always in this uncomfortable position. Like, do we go and 
be part of the conversation, but also sort of risk being a little discredited? Yeah. Or do we not go and do we get left out of that conversation? Mm -hmm. And some of them did go. And they said if they got their work done, it didn't matter if they came came back at 2 or 3 a.m. and got their stuff and went home, you know? This is this happens. This is real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just a picture of the culture in tech. You know, for those who are not in tech, it's, you know, the, what happens outside of work during lunch, even after hours, it seeps into the workplace. And when it starts to build a threatening and uncomfortable environment for women, they feel like they can't speak and they can't say anything because even HR departments won't defend them. And so I think there's this movement of people who are now taking the conversation outside of the workplace and doing it more on a public platform, writing blogs about it, writing books about it, because that's the only way that they can really be heard and be seen for what their experiences were. After hearing about just, I'm sure there's laundry list of stories and more women came forward. At some point, did you ever feel like desensitized by by the, the news and yeah. by the stories that were coming out? You know, I cared about this so much yeah. that I don't think I've ever been desensitized to it. Like, the, the story, I, I, I think I have even more of a yeah. sort of yeah. emotional reaction when I hear things. I get so heated. You know, there was a time, and the book is, I don't pull any punches, but it's not all doom and gloom. There are some bright spots and, and people who are doing good things and, and, and setting good examples. But there, you know, there was a point where I was searching for more bright spots and I wasn't finding them. And that mm. was hard. Yeah. You know, some people say, well, why don't you talk about the good things? I'm like, well, because there's really not that many, like, there's not that many truly amazing people who figured it all out. There's a mm. lot of people who are working hard on it, who've seen some progress, but nobody's perfect and so that was kind of over the course of two years like that was hard yeah that said i've been so encouraged by the response to the book and i've been invited to speak at amazon and microsoft and linkedin and yeah. and companies that could have easily said your book is called brotopia no thank you um but they are at least willing to have these conversations and allow their employees to engage in this conversation in a public forum and these employees are coming up to the microphone and they're energized and they yeah. want to make a difference and of course it's a self-selecting audience mm -hmm. um, and so there's certain people who aren't in that room but there are also some startup CEOs who've ma made like mandated made it mandatory for everybody to show up and bought the book for everyone at the company and so yeah. and you know and I have I've had CEOs say to me look like CEOs interview me in front of my company and say, look, I know we're not great at this. Like, I know we have a lot of work to do and that's why you're here. Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah. that's awesome. That's so amazing that these conversations are happening. Companies are opening up to, to change. Yeah. And I, I, one woman told me she gave the book to her boss and you know, he, he was sort of a self-proclaimed feminist mm -hmm. and he came back to her after two weeks and was like, oh my God, I had, I actually had no idea. I had no idea what I was missing. <laughs> And yeah. he scheduled a listening tour to visit 30 different uh, offices around the world. And he gave her funding for three things. One was to build an incubator for girls building companies in, in their field. One was uh, for the pipeline. And one was for hiring women and underrepresented minorities. And I was like, yes, that is yes. so amazing. That is what yeah. I want to hear. Oh, we need more of that. <laughs> Um, how can women in Silicon Valley best have their voices heard? And how can we bring men into the conversation? 
you know, sometimes I see there's like siloed pockets of people having conversations, but we want it to be a collective. And how can, you know, people in this room, people in the Ivy community, people in tech and outside of tech, how can we bring that conversation forward? So first of all, thank you, as I said at the top, to everyone who's here, you know, I'm so grateful that people care about this and people want to make a difference. And that's the first step. And, you know, I do think that there is something cathartic about women being able to talk to other women and men being able to talk to other men. And, you know, I, I, I know that some men are feeling scared and attacked as a result. Um, and we do need to create safe spaces for everybody to be able to talk about this. But we can't have these conversations separately. We need men and women to be in this together. And yeah. I do think there is an amount of women speaking up that is important, but it's not all on women. And men can speak up too. And, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about speaking up for, you know, when you see something go wrong, but you can also speak up when you see someone else getting interrupted or not getting an opportunity mm -hmm. or maybe someone's being treated poorly. And mm -hmm. it, it can be so much easier for you as the bystander to say, that's not cool, or maybe we should do something different than for the victim to say, hey, I'm being mansplained. Can you, like, stop that? Um, yeah. And so mentorship and advocacy are so important. You know, everybody in this room has some sort of power. And we all have an obligation to, to pass that power to people with potential, men and women. Yeah. Um, and I've benefited from great mentors in my career. And I feel an obligation to pay that forward. Yeah. I mean, isn't it amazing that it can start with one voice and then the group of people can just grow and then when you have a group of people with one voice, you can truly make an impact. I do think that employees can be really powerful here. I mean, mm. especially in this moment, nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history. Speaking of Amazon, you know, they have a very undiverse board of directors, 70% men. And there was recently a shareholder proposal that they use the Rooney rule when they're interviewing new directors, which means interviewing for every director seat, they interview women, underrepresented minorities, and men. And Amazon rejected this proposal. And employees got really pissed. And three days later, Amazon said, okay, we'll do it. So, you know, employees are really powerful. And I do think that while I think change needs to come from the top, I think agitation and, um, you know, momentum can also come from the bottom. Mm -hmm. And employees have a lot more power today, I think, than, than they ever did. That's true. There wouldn't be a company without them. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned in the book that after Sheryl Sandberg created the Lean In movement, that there were an entire industry of women who are against, like they're anti-lean in. Mm -hmm. So what do you think women, why do you think they would push back if this is an initiative that is promoting equality? Like that seems like a very um, unexpected response. Yeah. So not all women are the same. Not all women want the same thing. Not all women want to lean in. Some do. And, you know, I think Cheryl was, was speaking to a very specific kind of woman and I, her message really resonated with a lot of people. It really had an impact on me. Yeah. But part of the problem is we have so few examples of female leadership that we think the women who have succeeded, oh, that's the only way. Like, you're either a Cheryl or you're a Marissa. Like, you're either vocal about this or you don't want to talk about it at all. Um, and I interviewed both of them in the book about this, by the way. And they, they both care about it, but they ha they're different people and they have different approaches. Um, and I think if we had more examples of female leadership, we would see so many different ways that this can be done. We have so many examples of male leaders, guys who do it. But when we look at women, first of all, they're so isolated 
And then the media and people in general just sort of pile on. And so, you know, there's a section in the book where I talk about just the disproportionate amount of criticism that Cheryl and Marissa have received, even though they are completely different, where, you know, Marissa, she's, she's become CEO of Yahoo, and suddenly the fact that she's taking a two-week maternity leave becomes like an international event. When if she was a man who was about to have a child, no one would have known. No yeah. one would have even known. <laughs> Yeah. And there was this article in USA Today that said, Sheryl Sandberg and Marissa Meyer, are they setting back the cause of working moms? And I was like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. This yeah. is ridiculous. I'm not, we should criticize people who run billion dollar companies, but let's be fair about how, how we criticize them. And the stories we tell about them matter because perception matters mm -hmm. and I would just love to see more women being given the chance to, to crack that silicon ceiling so we can the next generation can next generation can sort of be what they can't see right now. Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing is that the next generation can feel safe going to work. I mean, some of these stories, they're entering threatening work environments on a daily basis. I mean, safety is a given. And yeah. sometimes it's like three steps forward, two steps back. I was at a company and a young woman came up to me and she was like, I wore a dress to work like four days in a row because it was hot. And then on Friday, it was cold. I, I didn't wear a dress. And someone made a comment like, oh, why aren't you wearing a dress today? She's like, now I never want to wear a dress. And I was kind of like... It's just, it's not, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but like to her, it really, it really was a big deal. And so I, you know, I do think safety is obviously number one, but mm -hmm. we need to create environments where people feel like they can be themselves and be authentic and belong, you know? That yeah. sense of belonging is really important. Um, and that's not something that only women want. That Men want that too. And I think that... It's only when you can be yourself that you can actually be as productive as, as you could possibly be. So it's, we're talking about unlocking the potential of the workforce. Obviously, it doesn't make sense to shut out half the population. Mm -hmm. But also, we want to create workplaces where everybody can contribute as much as they can. Yeah. If Silicon Valley could start over again, what do you <laughs> think it would look like? Uh, well, let's see what Amazon does, first of all. <laughs> I like to think that people here have good intentions. And, you know, part of the problem is uh, people think it's always been this way. I didn't create this problem. It was always like this. Well, in fact, this was actually the smoking gun in the book for me. If you go back to the 40s and 50s, women actually played a huge role in the computing industry. Mm -hmm. They were programming computers for the military and programming yeah. computers for NASA. And it really was like Hidden Figures, the movie, but industry-wide. Yeah. And then in the 60s and 70s, as the industry was starting to explode, they were so desperate for new talent that they started doing these personality tests and aptitude tests to identify good programmers. And they decided that good programmers, quote, don't like people. Well, if you look for people who don't like people, the research tells us you'll hire far more men than women. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you're laughing at that. Um, but really, there's no, there's no research to support the idea that people who don't like people are better at this job than people who do, or that men are better at this job than women. But it perpetuated this stereotype of the antisocial, mostly white, male nerd that persists to this day. And Revenge of the Nerds, there were all of these movies, but popular culture didn't create this idea. The tech industry created. In 1984, women were earning 37% of computer science degrees. That has plummeted to 18% where it's been flat 
for the last decade. Wow. So in my view, the tech industry created the pipeline problem. And today it reinforces the pipeline problem. Yes, there's a pipeline problem now. Mm -hmm. The tech industry created it. Yeah. Um, and so thinking about what Silicon Valley would look like if it could start over, you know, I would simply say, well, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't always this way. And as I said before, like this is an industry that never shied away from hard problems. Mm -hmm. And if you, the thing is, if you if you hire a diverse group of people from the beginning, it's so much easier as you scale mm -hmm. to maintain that mm -hmm. because these things feed on themselves. And by the way, if you look at some of the companies in tech that are run by women, the few of them, they're actually 50-50. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, these are it will be it will be so much easier for you to move forward as a company if you do this early on. And if you don't do this early on, it will be so much harder to make to change. Gotcha. Um, what change would you want to see in the next five years, ten years? You know, will we achieve parity in our lifetime? I really think that in order for culture to really change, the numbers do have to really change. You know, we can't just be talking about a culture change without the numbers keeping mm -hmm. pace. You know, if you have ten men around a dinner table, the conversation is a certain way. If you swap in one woman, it changes a little. Mm -hmm. If it's half and half, it's a completely different conversation. And that's what it's going to take for a real culture change. Now, the question could be asked, well, if women only were running our companies, would they be better? Um, there's an amazing study by the IMF that showed that if you swap out a man for a woman on an executive team or a board, profitability goes up by 3 to 8%. But if you, if you get to over 60% women, you start to have diminishing returns. So it's actually that, that balance that really is better. And I know 50-50 can sound like a sort of you know, fake construct to people, but we're, we're talking about a, an aspiration here. We're talking about an aspiration to some sort of balance in your workforce. Because if you don't have that, you will miss things. Yeah. You know, facial recognition technology is already a little bit sexist and a little bit racist because it doesn't recognize women and people of color as easily as it does white men. Someone um, in one of my talks mm. yesterday told me she uh, was a female investor looking at um, a, a gaming company run by men and they were showing her like the touchpad and um, it just wasn't responding to her finger. And they tried, they're like, oh, it works on my finger. And they realized that her finger was just more slender than theirs and they hadn't like tested that on like another person's hand, on a woman's hand. Yeah. Wow. These are things that matter. Big gaps, <laughs> big things that are missed for sure. Wow. Um, so, you know, since, since writing the book, you know, you've been speaking, you've been traveling. What has the overall response been from both sides, both advocates that support your view? And what's the response been for those who are opposed mm -hmm. to this new world? So, um, I'd say, I mean, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive that I've seen, but I know yeah. this is a self-selecting audience. Um, I've certainly been on the receiving end of some mean tweets. I just ignore them. Um, but in general, people have been really supportive. And I do think that most people would like to see this change, but they just don't know what to do about it, or they didn't know how big a problem it was. But now, like, ignorance can only be willful. I've written 300 pages about it. We know it's a problem. Yeah. Don't say you didn't know. So let's have this conversation together about how we can move forward and make a difference. Mm -hmm. 
So what are some resources that people here as individuals, managers, HR departments, and executives, what are some resources that they can go to to start making the change and start taking action? Um, in the last chapter of the book, I focus on solutions, and I talk about a company called Slack, which I'm sure many of you know. Um, and this is a company where they were about 50 people, most of them men, when the CEO, Stuart Butterfield, was like, mm -hmm. this is not acceptable. Um, and at that point, he could have thought, it's too late, but he didn't. And they made a concerted and explicit effort to hire women and underrepresented minorities. And every time he tweets about this, they get a spike in inbound interest. So just saying that you care attracts people who care. Yes. And They've diversified their recruiting captains. They've structured their interview process. So even when you're doing an interview, if, you, if someone comes in and they look the part, you're going to ask them different questions. If they don't look the part, you're going to be asking them tougher questions because you think they don't look the part. So just mm. making sure that, that all of that is standardized is really important. They source from underrepresented schools and different geographic locations and across a range of ages. They've changed their job descriptions, and they actually say, you know, we really value having people of a diversity of backgrounds, and we believe that having more voices at the table will make us a better company. But it's not just about hiring. It's about retention and progression. And yes. I found some amazing data that shows that you know, women, two times faster than men, they leave tech, and they're not leaving to take care of families. They're going to take jobs in other fields. Mm -hmm. They're 807% more likely to leave a job in tech than they are to leave a job in other fields. And the reasons they say they're leaving are not to go home to family, their hostile environment, feelings of isolation, feelings wow. of not feeling valued, feelings of not progressing. Mm -hmm. And actually, women leave jobs for the same reasons men leave jobs. You know, mm -hmm. again, they want the same thing. And so Slap's thing is, um, their motto is actually work hard and go home. And they want to be a place for grown-ups. They're not trying to be like a college dorm fantasy land. There's no dinner served. There's no ping pong tables. <laughs> and so they are actually punching way above the averages. So I think they're 43% women, 48% of managers are women, okay. and 37 or so percent of technical employees are women. You know, Salesforce has also set a great example by doing a really dramatic comprehensive pay review. And Mark Benioff is out there talking about it. And people hear him because it's Mark Benioff talking about it. That matters. You know, these are people who have loud voices and they should use them for this purpose. Yeah. I love that. I love that just one voice can amplify. And when you partner with people who have the influence and the impact, you know, this is, this is really the start of a huge movement. It's been really amazing just learning more about your past and your inspiration and also the stories. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. 
Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smart Water or Smart Water Sparkling today and at your local retailer.